Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. Today is Wednesday, October 6th, and I'm your host, Emily Flippin. Today, I am joined by The Fool's Brian Stoffel to talk about Riskified. It's a newly public business that's looking to solve online payment fraud. Uh, Brian, thanks so much for joining. I think this is your first time on Industry Focus ever, despite the fact that you are a prominent figure here at The Fool. So I'm really excited. Well, thank you, Emily. It's exciting to be on. I, I enjoy the show. I listen to it all the time. Well, today's show is is especially fun, <clears throat> selfishly, because you mentioned that you wanted to talk about this business in today's episode. And I have to say, I, I mentioned this as an online payments fraud business, so it may not sound like the type of business that I would inherently be skeptical about. But maybe 10 minutes into my research for the show, I was, you know, I was foaming at the mouth. I was ready to go. I was like, this is another lemonade. But as I got deeper into this business, it grew on me more and more and more. And as I sit here today, I actually think I'm really excited about this company. So I, I'm excited that you brought it to me um, and that we have a chance to kind of talk about it. It's an it's an interesting company. Thank you. And I will also say that your initial reaction, if you look at the stock, what it's done recently was probably justified. It's down quite a bit from its all-time highs, but we see this all the time with super small recent IPO companies. So I don't think it's anything investors should get worried about. Um, but I do think it's worth digging into because this is very unique. There is some, you, there's a lot to wrap your mind around. Well, with that, tell us a little bit about how this business got started. I love a good origin story. Sure. So um, the company's co-founder and CEO, Ido Gal, he worked for a company that got acquired by PayPal. And while he was at PayPal, he worked in their fraud division. And while he was there, he realized what a big deal chargebacks were. Now, chargeback is kind of like where you send the product to someone and they say they didn't get it. And who knows, maybe it got lost in the mail. Maybe they, n- nobody knows. But the bottom line is, is that you lose the product and you lose your money. And so it's a really it's a bad deal. But if you're the kind of consumer that most of us are who pays for things regularly, you might ask yourself, well, how often does that happen? I mean, it can't be that big of a deal. I know that there's some people that steal those Amazon packages that are on your front doorstep, but come on. So my question to you, and I'm putting you on the spot here, Emily, the economist tried to estimate how much is lost in sales, not only from chargebacks, but also from vendors saying, nope, I'm not going to sell you this product because based on what we know, we think it's going to lead to a chargeback. Percentage-wise, do you have any idea? Um, Percentage-wise, I would think it'd have to be less than 10%. Um, but I, I say that ignorantly thinking, based off your question, it has to be bigger. But initially thinking, yeah, less than 10% of sales must you know, be rejected, right? You're close. It's between 10 and 15%, which is a sizable chunk if you're saying, I'm denying these and they could get approved. So he worked at PayPal. He saw this was a problem. He got together with his co-founder who's still on board and they started building basically an AI machine that could figure out based on a ton of variables that I'm not even going to pretend to understand whether or not someone who comes to a merchant is going to lead to a chargeback or they're not going to lead to a chargeback. And I can get into the results more if you want, but that's the basic idea. So, and this is especially important, I'll also say, for international vendors, because 
you know, I might, I'm in Wisconsin. If I run a local business, I might have a pretty good idea of who my customers are. But if I'm running my business in Wisconsin and I'm selling to the other side of the world, I have no idea what to expect. So this is especially important to those types of e-commerce vendors. I, I definitely want you to get into it because when I started to read into this, and we're getting into this black box that exists. Anytime a business starts talking about AI, I always kind of roll my eyes. And this is where my skepticism came in. I felt the same way about Lemonade and admittedly haven't looked at Lemonade in a while. Um, but when I did my initial research, I remember feeling like ugh, they're using a lot of buzzwords. They're saying, oh, we have this proprietary system. We can tell who is going to be a, a good person to bring into our network, right? Versus somebody who's maybe going to commit fraud or be a riskier person. So we can make a better decision about like what their premium should be. And I heard Riskified kind of saying a similar thing throughout their perspectives, essentially saying, oh, we have a good idea about when a customer comes to a company, if they're going to result in a chargeback or not. And it's all based off of our our special technology that just gets better with time. And I don't know, I anytime someone says we have something special, it's proprietary, but it's kind of in this black box. My I don't know. My my red flags start getting thrown a little bit. No, I, I get it. It's it's them saying, trust us. Don't don't worry about it. Just trust us. And I th- I had the same reaction. It's funny you say that, Emily, because I had the same reaction when I first looked at Upstart in January. And I said, I come on. Like how how can what you have be that special when there are these banks that have all these people? And obviously I've been very wrong about that. Upstart has done very well. I think their revenue in the second quarter was up like a thousand percent. So, and actually when it comes to AI, the way that we view it, it is very difficult. But Tom Gardner made the point that Google, their main moat is basically AI. It's their algorithm. So it can work. The problem is it's not as obvious to us the same way that Walmart has purchasing power. Anyone who spends a little bit of time can figure that out. That's a moat. Uh, Risk fight as AI. Really? Show me. Oh, you're showing it to me. I don't understand it because I'm not a data scientist. But let's get into the results because I think that's where we can start to see evidence of a moat start to prove itself out. So I'm going to use one of their biggest customers as an example, Wayfair, where a lot of people get their furniture and their home furnishings. I get a lot of the stuff from there. Um, Wayfair uses Riskified. So if Wayfair uses Riskified, it helps them in two ways. And I think it's important to understand both. One, it cuts down on the expenses that Riskify was using to prevent fraud. So it cuts down on their operating expenses. And then it increases their revenue because Riskified is approving a certain number of transactions every month that normally would not have been approved. So you're cutting costs and you're gaining revenue. And Riskified went back and they looked at their 10 largest customers. And they do have concentration risks that are worth mentioning. But they looked at their 10 largest customers. What they found was, was that expenses related to fraud at those companies were cut 39%. That's a pretty good deal. Revenue increased 8% on average. So it's not only cutting costs, but it's increasing revenue. And then here's the kicker, Emily. If Riskified approves a transaction that later leads to a chargeback, Riskified will cover it. So even even if there wasn't 39% savings and an 8% revenue growth, even if it was just 1% and 1%, it's still a no-brainer because it costs 
almost nothing to use. And those 39% savings are net of the fees that are paid to Riskified. So it makes it a really, it's almost, it's almost silly not to use it. I will say, I, it sounds compelling, but when you start telling me that they're offering what is essentially a guarantee to the purchaser that this transaction will not result in a chargeback, and if it does result in a chargeback, we'll cover it, that to me sounds like an insurance company. <laughs> and I, I have a hard time understanding how this isn't considered an insurance company. And that's actually a really good point. And I, I kick myself for not having looked at that before because in a way it is. And the funny part is, is it's the hook or the, the it's the customer acquisition aspect. Like they use that chargeback guarantee as almost like the, hey, you got to use us. You've got no excuse for not using us. And then it goes from being AI, just an AI product, almost like a SaaS product, although it's not because they get paid a portion of their, their gross merchandise value. But it almost goes from that to being an insurance company. But if we look at those numbers, too, there, there's a couple things to point out. One, Riskify doesn't pay cash in most cases for the chargeback. So what do they do? They offer credits for that retailer in the future. So if they if they were guaranteed to say pay Riskified $1000 and they had a $500 chargeback, they'll stick it still get that $1000 of Riskified services, but they'll only pay 500 for it. So Riskified is not paying that out of their coffers. They're losing revenue, but they're not paying it out of their coffers. That's one. But two is it's really important to look at the trends with the chargeback. So in 2019 they used about 42% of their billings on the chargeback. That's a lot. But part of that's because they're only collecting about, by my calculations, about a quarter, literally one quarter, 25 cents on every $100 spent across all their merchants. That's not much. So using 42% of your billings on that kind of makes sense. But that fell from 42% to 37% in 2020. And they didn't reveal what it was, what that figure was in the most recent quarter. But here's what they did say, that their their cost of revenue is almost entirely their chargebacks. And while revenue grew 44%, their cost of revenue grew just 27%. So from that, we to me, we can assume that that chargeback percentage is continuing to fall. And to me, that is the clear sign we have available to us of saying, this does look like a moat. They, the AI is improving. They're, they're approving more transactions and they're spending less on chargebacks. I was excited. When I started to see these numbers come out, I was like, oh, I'm going to I'm gonna take risk of I'm going to run it through the metrics we use to evaluate any other insurance company and show you just how bad this business is. But when you look at that percentage of billings that's lost to chargebacks, the closest metric that you can compare it to in the insurance industry is something called the loss ratio. So investors who are familiar with the insurance industry know that decent loss ratios are usually in the area of 40 to 60%. And so that 37%, I was... <laughs> I was somewhat disappointed, but I guess now excited to say that's lower than what you would normally expect from a decent insurance business. So to the extent that you want to evaluate Riskified as an insurer, 
they're actually performing really well. In fact, while they obviously don't break out metrics like the combined ratio, which is a key performance indicator for insurance companies, if we take out their stock-based compensation and seeing that the majority of these operating costs are billings, their combined ratio is probably less than 100%, meaning they're not actually losing any money on the customers that they're bringing in. Again, this is unlike when I looked at Lemonade, both of those metrics were were horribly negative or greater than 100% in the case of the combined ratio. But either way, when you look at the financial performance of this business, even taking that added level of skepticism to say, I'm going to treat this like an insurance company, pretend like the software aspect isn't really there, it's still pretty impressive. I, I have to say, I, I my jaw is a little on the floor right now. Yeah. And here's the thing. I think it can make it below 30% because they're still... They've been doing this for longer than anybody else. And that head start we learned from Upstart, it does matter. It makes a difference that they've got this this backlog of data that they're feeding to their AI. I believe it could fall below 30%. But the other thing to keep in mind, because it's going to be a little bit bumpy, is that they've said as they enter new verticals, which basically just means as they enter new industries, their chargeback ratios once they get started are usually much higher. And that makes perfect sense because the AI is just starting to learn what leads to a chargeback and what doesn't. But they fall over time and they're a smaller percentage of overall revenue. So don't be surprised if there is some lumpiness. But I would not be surprised if five years from now that ratio was below 30%. And then, Emily, here's the other thing that is just if you are a software as a service provider, super exciting. And I know I sound like a bear or a bull, a huge bull. The stock's down big. And I, and I am a bull. We'll get to the risks. <laughs> yeah. But their, their dollar based net retention was solid when they came public a couple months ago. I think it was in the range of about 120, maybe 117. But travel and ticketing are two of their largest uh, verticals. Now, travel and ticketing, and because they're paid as a percentage of all sales for their merchants, were non-existent because we couldn't go to concerts and people weren't traveling on airplanes. If you didn't include travel and ticketing, their dollar-based net retention was 158% when they came public over the trailing year. That's We almost never see numbers like that. Like that's better than CrowdStrike. And it's because it's a usage-based model. It's based on the amount of gross merchandise volumes that its merchants sell. And let's get into that because there was an option when Riskify thought about setting up its business, they could go the subscription route where you just pay a flat monthly fee to have access to their services or the usage-based model route. And uh, there's so much back and forth across different industries about which is better. And I think Riskify is proving out that in their case, at least, that percentage of gross merchandise value is great because they succeed when the merchant succeeds. So they make money by charging that percent of GMV, but the fee does depend on the customer base. So it's not a matter of, oh, we take an X percent fee off every purchase. It's perceived how risky that company is. So if you're talking about a company that mainly does sales into markets that their system, their AI system determines have the highest amounts of fraud, then there's going to be a higher percentage fee. And they actually use metrics from property and casualty insurers um, to actually kind of determine that discount rate that they're going to be using to figure out what premium they need to be paid. The one thing I will mention is that they actually only get paid for uh, purchases that are approved by their system. So they do have an incentive to approve as many charges as possible, but at the same time, because they reimburse for any fraud that happens uh, that the business was covered against, they don't want to approve anything that results in a chargeback. So it actually works for, for both Riskified and the merchant. 
Yeah, it's a beautiful job of aligning incentives. And on that point, Emily, I think what's important to say is that a company like Wayfair, we don't know what the agreement with Wayfair is, but Wayfair might only kick a certain percentage of their potential purchases to them. It doesn't mean that Riskified is reviewing 100%. They might, but they have agreements to specify which ones Riskified will review and which ones they won't. And one of the things that makes it really appealing that I, I imagine the salespeople at Riskified must love this aspect of the business, but as an investor does make me a little bit worried and is something that I put down as a risk is the fact that they actually guarantee a certain amount of approvals. So it's great because the salespeople can go to the customers and said, hey, if you're only approving, say, 92% of purchases that go through your platform, we'll guarantee that we approve at least 95. Um, and that's great because from the business angle, again, it goes back to that average revenue. Their revenue is going to increase. And if it you know doesn't, then they get that chargeback guarantee. But it does mean that the pressure is on, right? They're essentially looking at the current systems that the customer has, whatever they have for fraud, and they're saying, we can do better than that. In fact, we know we can do better than that, so we're gonna bet money on it. And if they can't do better than what they expect, then that 92 or whatever percent it was, then they end up losing money. I don't see that happening right now, but it's, a, I guess, a risk to keep in mind. Right, and, and so the thing to remember with that is this, is that it is a risk to keep in mind at the same time, Riskified will be hurt and its shareholders hurt and its co-founders are the biggest shareholders, individual shareholders. We will all be hurt if they say we will approve more than they should be saying. So what we are placing faith in the management team to do is to not go into some company that has a risky business that it's that it's selling to and saying, we're going to approve 100%. Because if they do that, that's really bad news. So we're, we're trusting that when they re-up these contracts every year, they're using the data they have to make a smart amount of percentages that they say that they will that they will approve. And another thing to keep in mind in terms of how that revenue is recognized, because it gets confusing. While they do have a few other product lines, the virtually all of their revenue right now comes from this fraud management business. And the revenue recognition is kind of weird there, because while they're getting a percent of this GMV, they're also trying to go through that insurance process, right, of estimating how much of this is going to have to be paid out in the future. Again, not in cash, but actually in just decreases from from future billings, right? That credit that is being handed to their customers. So a portion, it's historically been around 50 to 60% of their revenue is recognized in the month that it occurs. So when the GMV goes flows through the merchants, they recognize that revenue that month. Uh, but the rest, 40 or 50%, is recognized over a period of six months um, as consideration for that guarantee. So there is a little bit of lag time, you can say, in their revenue, assuming that their models hold up and that chargebacks don't end up larger than what management expects, um, their backlog is a pretty interesting predictor of what future revenue is going to be. Yeah. And if you and if you keep keep that in mind and you track that over time, you get a really good idea for what's coming down the pipeline in the quarters to come as well. Well, I feel like we've been really, I guess, bullish here. And I it's justified. This is a really interesting business. I haven't seen anything like it. I like the fact that I can't consciously think of any single company that is competing with Riskified, um, at least solely on their core business right now. But there are certainly risks here. So um, Brian, I think you're a shareholder yourself. What risks stand out to you? Sure. Well, I mean, th there's a whole bunch of risks. The number one risk that every investor should, and I'm going back to the basics here, is that I don't understand the business. 
and and here I am on the Motley Fool industry focused podcast saying I might not understand the business, but look, everybody needs to have that humility of being able to say that that might be the case. But beyond that, I would say that uh, one, and this was pointed out by someone at Twitter, if hackers somehow figure out a way through or a way to um, exploit the AI and make a whole bunch of purchases that end up being fraudulent and riskified has to pay for that or give huge considerations for future revenue, that could be like a black swan that could really sideline the company. So I, I don't. I don't know the intricacies. Management's probably the only one who does of how they're making sure to avoid that, but it's something that's at least worth saying. There's always the potential for people bringing it in-house because once they see how well this works, they might wanna do that. And then there is competition actually, Emily. If you go, for instance, on Shopify's third-party uh, marketplace where you can buy things, there's a lot of people that offer the same thing. Here's the difference, and I'm not saying it makes it good or bad, is most of those have subscription-based products. Riskified used to list their tool on Shopify's marketplace. They don't anymore because they decided to go this usage-based model and only focus on merchants that have over $75 million annually in spending. So it's just, it's it was a business model decision that they made, but it doesn't mean that there aren't others out there who are trying to do the same thing. And that's interesting. I think for smaller businesses too, I mean, a lot of payment providers offer some level of fraud prevention. So a lot of companies, admittedly, probably companies that are less than 75 million in sales of so smaller businesses, but what they'll choose to do is just um, either self-insure or trust that their payment provider is going to flag any sort of issues related to, to fraudulent sales, right? Um, but what stands out to me, I think, is is the landscape is certainly interesting. I, I worry a bit about just how many opportunities there are. There's, I, I really do think that they're doing well with their current customers, right? You mentioned Wayfair, but other customers include Macy's, Wish, Foot Locker, Prada, Skull Candy. Um, so all in that nice sweet spot in terms of, of not too large to bring it in-house, but not small enough that they're uh, not going to be going based off of a usage-based model. I worry a little bit that when customers get too big, they'll just choose to self-insure. And I think Amazon is a good example of that. I, I don't know how much uh, losses Amazon just kind of retains as a result of porch pirates or fraudulent purchases, but it's enough that Amazon probably isn't going to be a riskified customer. They'd probably just choose to retain that risk themselves. Um, if they were able to pull in a big customer like that, though, I mean, my mind would be blown. Well, and that's a really good point, Emily, because they do need to pull in big customers. Eventually, at some point in time, they're going to reach a point where their GMV growth is pretty much going to match whatever the economy growth is, right? Because if they're not adding new customers, then that's where it's going to be. I still think that there's probably more of an opportunity out there for them. And importantly, as those chargeback loss ratios go down, even if they keep the same amount of GMV, their profit will go up because they're they're saving less for those chargebacks. But it's it's still worth considering. They do need to land bigger custom medium to big size customers continually moving forward for it to fulfill its potential. And the last risk that I'll throw out there, and maybe I'm overblowing the risk of this. It was just stood out to me when I read when I read it through, so I might as well mention it, is that um, 
at some point, maybe this is legally considered an insurance business. I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not positive what that definition is. You're probably right that it has something to do with the the lack of consideration in cash in comparison to just uh, future credits that differentiates this business from an insurer. But insurance companies have to go through a lot of hoops and, and a lot of regulations regarding their business practices, especially around things like liquidity and, and metrics. So if at some point, whether it be in the United States or elsewhere, while the majority of the revenue does come from the US, they are, I believe, incorporated in Israel. So depending on which jurisdictions they're operating in, possibly someone could interpret this business as an insurance company, which then may change the regulatory framework in which it works. Yeah, and it might. And I don't know what the laws are in Israel. I do know that there's some consideration for changing laws in Europe that are coming up as well that management has talked about on the conference calls. But I would argue, and maybe this is a silly argument for me to make, I always use Southwest Airlines. I don't know about you, Emily. Do you know why I use Southwest Airlines? Other than I love it. But do you know the other reason? Why? Because I can change my reservation at any time, which if you think about it, isn't that the same thing? Southwest compensates me if I have to change. It's like trip insurance, right? Like if I change my mind, I don't, I'm, I'm not losing anything. I don't get the cash back, but I have to use it with Southwest within a year. What Riskified is doing is not all that different than what Southwest is offering. Southwest is saying you can change your mind. Riskified is saying you won't get a chargeback, but if you do, here's what, what we're going to do for you. So I could see an argument being made that it's not quite an insurance company. I like that argument. I hadn't thought about it that way. Uh, before you wrap up here, I know that you have a framework for which you analyze companies and um, you do it a lot. And if people aren't familiar with your Twitter account, with your YouTube account, I believe as well, you do stuff with Brian Feroldi. I mean, it's a wonderful resource, so I encourage everybody to listen to it. But you also have something that you call the anti-fragile score. Um, what can you tell us about that and how Riskified stacks up? Sure. So the anti-fragile score is based on the the writings of Nassim Nicholas Taleb, who it was a former trader and now just kind of does whatever he wants and is an interesting, very interesting person. We have an interview with him between him and I in our replay hub. So go there and type his name in if you want to see it. But he, he said the world breaks down into three things, things that are fragile. So like a glass that could fall on the ground, things that are robust, like a piece of iron. It's not going to change when it's exposed to stress. And then things that are anti-fragile, things that will get stronger when exposed to chaos and stress up to a point. Um, and our muscles would be a great example. Our muscles get stronger actually because they tear. And as long as we give them enough time to rest and recover, they will grow back stronger. So what I wanted to do was find companies that do the same thing. Obviously, every company will break if it's put under extreme stress, but I want to find ones that will get stronger under normal amounts of stress. So I look at things like their mission, their moat, the optionality that the company has, their cash balance, because that plays a huge role in anti-fragility. If you've got lots of cash and free cash flow during an economic crisis, you can get way stronger because of it, because your competitors don't have that. And then I look at things like skin in the game, like are the founders involved? How much do they own? Do employees like working there? So those are the things. And then there is one other risk, which is important to point out because Riskified has it, which is concentration risk. When you are counting on a lot, a few customers for a lot of business, there can be one decision made in one boardroom on one day that overnight changes your business. So when Riskify did this, I look for companies that score between a seven and a 12 uh, on my framework. And you can visit the YouTube channel to see this. It's Brian Feroldi YT, because I do all this with Brian Feroldi. 
YTs for YouTube, but it scored an eight and a half. So it's in that investable range. 12 and above is the best, but this company, there's too many unknowns to give it that. And the big points off came from that concentration risk. Well, I love that framework and um, haven't had the chance to go back and listen to the analysis that you've done of a riskified on your YouTube channel with, with Brian Feroldi. Um, but investors who are looking for more information should definitely go you know, check that out. Follow Brian on, on Twitter. Uh, listen to us here on, on Motley Fool Live if you're a Motley Fool subscriber. But Brian, in the meantime, thank you so much for joining. This was really enlightening and we'll have to do it again. Thanks for having me, Emily. I really enjoyed it. Investors and listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions and just want to reach out to say, hey, don't be afraid to shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com or tweet at us at mfindustryfocus. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for his work behind the screen today. For Brian Stoffel, I'm Emily Flippin. Thanks for listening and Fool on. Fool on.